0: Glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Exodus chapter 12. Let's read verses 1 through 14, and then we'll skip down to verse 18. So I have to do a little bit of reading this morning, but I want to read all of this together, and then we'll refer back to it throughout the message. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his legs, with his, uh, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth un- of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, if you would go down to verse eighteen, it says, "In the first uh, in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month. At even, seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel." whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leaven and all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel on the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and... When he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised that ye shall keep this service, and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you what mean ye by this service, that ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, "...who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, and he, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they." Verse 29, "...it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon." And all the firstborn of cattle and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Speaking of the Egyptians, you have the historical account of what took place the night before the children of Israel left Egypt as they had been captive in that land for 430 years. Uh, the Egyptians had made slaves of them and there's so much typology in that. We'll say more about that later. At this moment, I I want to focus on what is stated in this text and give some very specific things. The children of Israel, as I said, had been in slavery in Egypt. God had raised up Moses to lead them out. In Exodus chapter 4, when God called Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, you know Moses was reluctant. And God said, I'm going to give you signs to show and ask Moses what was in his hand. He said it was the rod and said, cast it down. He cast it down. It became a serpent. He picked it up and turned back into the rod. And God would use that rod to perform wonders in Egypt. When Moses put it over the Nile River, it turned into blood and so forth. Later on, he would lift it up and the Red Sea would part. God used that tool in his hand because Moses used the tool by faith. There's a great lesson in that for all of us. But what I would say is God had told, when you tell Pharaoh, he told Moses, when you tell Pharaoh, let my people go, he surely is not going to let them go. He's going to harden his heart, and I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to let them go, and then I'm going to pour my plagues on him to prove that I'm God and that it does not pay. And I'm paraphrasing. It does not pay to harden oneself against God. God's very patient. God's very long-suffering, but God is still God. And so he uses Pharaoh as an example to the rest of us to say, don't do this. Don't be like Pharaoh. And so when we come into Exodus chapter 12, nine plagues have been poured out on the nation of Egypt. And the Egypt is a picture and a type of the world. And so God had turned the water to blood. He had poured, put frogs in the land, lice on the land, flies on the land, a disease on the livestock, boils, hail, locusts. And the ninth plague was darkness so that you could not see. And now is coming the tenth plague. And God had warned Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I will kill and take your firstborn. The firstborn of Pharaoh, the firstborn of the servant, the firstborn of the cattle. God had said, you let my people go or I will kill the firstborn. How many of us know Pharaoh knew that that was coming? Now, you and I would say, man, if I was him, I would relent. But your heart may not be as hard as Pharaoh's was. Pharaoh was stubborn. Can I just Can I throw a little spiritual commercial at you this morning? Stubbornness is evil. God says so. It's the duty of a preacher to remind us that being stubborn is wicked. Sometimes we delight in that. May I say this? Being steadfast is wonderful. Steadfast is an unwillingness to change because you know you're on the right side of things. Stubbornness is unwillingness to change because I don't want to do things God's way. I want to do things my own way. Steadfastness is I want to do things God's way. So I'm going to do, I'll just stick with God. Stubbornness is wicked. And Pharaoh, it resulted in his destruction. It resulted in the destruction of his nation. So I just want to put things in historical context as we come into Exodus chapter 12. Nine plagues have fallen. The tenth has been prophesied. It's been told God's going to take his firstborn. Pharaoh should have known God meant business. But he said, no, I'm not giving up. I will let him go. And so God begins to make preparation of his people, saying this is what you need to do before tonight. God warns them that a deaf angel would come and when he came into the land of Egypt, he would be killing all the firstborn. Let me just say this so we have an understanding. The the firstborn in the Bible is a type and a picture of our first nature. You find Cain killed Abel. You find that Esau despised Jacob. You find Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And that pattern runs through Scripture that the firstborn, uh, and God uses not every firstborn in the Bible was corrupt, but God gives us a number of them to show us our first nature. The one we're born with is wicked. The flesh is rotten. And so God slaying the firstborn is a picture of what happens if you die without being born again. If you die in your sins, all you and I have to look forward to is the judgment of God. The first man is not fit for heaven. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the principle that runs throughout the Bible. And so God's preparing His people. And so I'm going to give you a few things here out of Exodus 12 that will lead us to a final point. So I want to begin in Exodus 12 with the precept that God gives His people. He gives them some precepts about preparing for this night of judgment. God says night's going to fall, and when darkness falls, the angel of death is going to come. In Sunday school this morning, we looked at a similar forewarning, did we not? That there is a nighttime coming on earth, a day of darkness called the day of the Lord. And God has warned that wrath is coming, judgment is coming. But listen, He's also told us how to prepare. Even as He did them. And He gave His people some precepts. It's very interesting. If I was going to tell people how to prepare for the death angel, I would say, dig a bunker, go down deep, hide, you know, until it's all done. God says, you're going to use a lamb. How many of you, to prepare for the death angel, the wrath of God, you'd say, let's go get a one-year-old lamb. And that'll prepare us. God is wise, is He not? He was not only looking at what was going on in Egypt. Do you realize when God instituted the Passover, He was looking into 2021. He gave this account and preserved it in Scripture for our benefit this morning that we might see some things clearly. And that's my prayer. That's what takes place. So in verses 1 through 10... God, Jehovah God, laid down some precepts for his people. He said, if you're going to prepare and the death angel is not going to touch your house, here are some things that must be done. First of all, he tells them there must be a, the selection of a lamb. Now, let's read it. Verse 3, God tells Moses, his spokesman, ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And then he goes on to say, and they shall take of the uh, verse 6, and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it, Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, so on and so forth. It says, don't let any of it remain until the morning. you got to eat it all. So you're going to select a lamb. All right. It says, here's God's precepts. You're going to select a lamb. He is very specific about how that lamb must be. It must be in the first year. So it's a young lamb. This is a lamb that has not reproduced any other sheep yet. This is a lamb that is... that is Let that... me ask you something. When you see a little lamb, a little tiny guy that's less than a year old, and I know they grow fast, Does it make you think, oh, those nasty little critters? God didn't say, choose a swine, did he? He didn't say, pick a serpent, did he? No, he knows what he's doing. He's painting a picture for us. He said, get a lamb, either a goat or a sheep. How many of you, I'm going to tell you something. If you like going out and killing a lamb, you've got problems. I like to harvest an elk. I like to harvest a deer. I don't like to harvest baby ones. I don't like it. I don't do it. You know why? Why? There's something in my heart that says, you "No." Know, if I see a little fawn, you know what I want to do? I don't think supper. I think, oh, what a pet. Wouldn't that be nice? You, why is it that we feel that way? No, just, This is natural affection is what it's called. Because they're innocent. They're innocent. They're, uh, so you take a little lamb, it's, it's innocent, it's harmless. How many of you have heard of someone murdered by a lamb? The lamb charged and killed the person. You have? I never heard of it. <laughs> lambs, sheep may, goats will. They'll hurt you if they can. But little lambs are harmless. You know uh, that God says, "I want you to choose a lamb. You're select a lamb. It must be without blemish. You can't pick the lamb that's the runt. You can't pick the lamb that got crippled in the fence. You got to get a perfect one." It has to be without blemish, not missing a leg, not with a cut ear. All these things would be spelled out in the law. The lamb has got to be without blemish. It's got to be one that you say, that little guy, If it would win 4-H, right? It's got to be a perfect little lamb. It's got to be without blemish. It's very specific in the selection of the lamb. It's got to be in the first year. It's got to be without blemish, and it has to be of the sheep or of the goats. So it's going to be a yearling, all right? Then he says in verse 6, you're going to select that lamb so you may slay the lamb. Verse 6, he says, uh, on the 14th day, that you'll keep this lamb up, and then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. That tells you that these lambs were symbolic to the nation. Because he doesn't refer, they shall kill the lambs, he says it. Meaning every household had to have a lamb. So this selecting of the lamb is, is symbolic as though the nation has one lamb. So everyone's going to select. It has to be by these standards. He must be within the first year. It must be a male. It must be without blemish. And then on the the 14th day, you're going to take it and you're going to kill the lamb. And then he says, you're not going to do that, verse 7, you're going to take the blood from that lamb. You're going to make a substitution here. What you're going to do is the life of the lamb for you. Instead of your firstborn dying, your little lamb is going to die in his place. Now, if I'm a firstborn... I'd be real happy about that. God says, what we're going to do is you're going to select a lamb. You're going to slay the lamb because the lamb is going to be a substitute. So you slay the lamb, verse 6, verse 7, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat. Uh, strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. Now, it became a substitute in a twofold fashion, and you'll see this borne out in Scripture later, but it's a twofold, twofold fashion. Number one, the lamb would die so that the firstborn would not have to. The lamb died in place of the firstborn. Secondly, though, and we understand this as we go out and we harvest an animal, or someone else does and packages it, and we buy it in the store, that animal lost its life so that we can live. Every time you eat a piece of meat, you are sustaining your life at the expense of another. Now, when you buy it in the store package like that, you may not think that. If you're a hunter, you understand it only too well. That animal has now lost its life so that me and my family can live. We, we sustain life through its death. That's what he's saying here. You're going to take the lamb, you're going to slay it, and you're going to take the blood of that lamb, and you're going to apply it to the doorpost, one on the sides and on the top, so that it can be seen from the outside. You're going to take that blood, and it would say later in verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. The blood comes from an animal being slain. It's a token that that lamb has that God's precept has been honored. The lamb was selected. The lamb was slain. Then he said, you're not just going to eat it anyway. You're not going to boil it in water. Uh, you're going to roast it with fire. Fire is a picture of God's judgment and wrath. The lamb was a substitute for the household. We understand that. So he says, here's what's going to happen. Here's my precepts. I'm coming through the land. The death angel is coming. He's going to kill the firstborn in every household with one exception. He's going to make a promise in verses 12 and 13, a two-fold promise. He's going to promise destruction, but he's also going to promise deliverance all at the same time. But prior to the promise is a precept. He said, here's what happens. You select a lamb, you slay the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost as a token that that lamb has been slain, and then you bring that lamb in, and it gives its life to sustain your life. Its death is in the place of the death of your firstborn, and the life that is received from it when you eat it." stands as a substitution. And so then we come to the next part. We've seen the precepts of God, verses 1 through 10, and then the promise that he makes in verses 12 and 13. He says, "...for I will pass through the land of Egypt when this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment... I am the Lord. What God is saying is, I I am coming with my final plague of judgment. I'm going to smite every firstborn of the beast, every firstborn, he would say later, from Pharaoh's house to the servant that grinds in the mill. No one is an exception. I'm coming through with destruction. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know there's a similar, and we've said it already, it was mentioned in Sunday school, a similar promise about the end of this world. God's promise to no longer destroy with a flood, but if you read the book of Revelation, there's a day of tribulation coming. What God's saying is, I want to deal with Egypt figuratively, the world, one day. And he makes the same promise here, a promise of certain destruction. Number two, though, he makes a promise of certain deliverance. Verse 13. So in verse 12, he says, I'm going to pass through the land, and we're going to, we're going to execute judgment. I am the Lord. But in verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. What a promise. What a promise. He says, I'm going to come through, I'm going to join, I'm going to to judge the land, but as I come through, when I see the blood on the doorpost, that house does not get judgment. Now, God told his people this, this is how you are spared the judgment. What a simple promise. That brings us to point number three, though. Point number three in this text is the procurement of the people. So God said, here's your precepts, here's the promise. I want you to select the lamb, that's the precepts. I want it to be a male of the first year without blemish. You are to slay the lamb and put its blood on the doorpost as a token, and then you're to eat it. It is a substitute for your family. And then he says, I'm going to come and I'm bringing destruction, but when I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you. Now then, wonderful precepts, wonderful promise, we find though in verses 21 through 30 the procurement of the people. They will procure salvation by taking God at His word. All right, so let's read verse 21 again. I know we read it earlier. We're going to read it again. Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Take out and draw, uh, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. It's interesting the simplicity of Scripture, but what what God had said in the first verses now has to become action on their part. It wasn't just we believe this theory that if we were to slay a lamb, if we were to put the blood on the doorpost, why? God would pass over. God's promise of destruction and God's promise of deliverance were not far off theories. They were present tense facts. I think sometimes we do this with God's word. It's distant. It's out there somewhere. Instead of affecting us today, it's all hypothetical. No, when we take God at his word, it becomes practical. It's not hypothetical. It's practical. Verse 22, And you should take a bunch of hyssop, it's a type of a, a plant, and dip it in the blood. It worked like a paintbrush. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. His, his, his instruction is very clear. Death is coming through in the night. You stay in your house behind the door with the blood until the morning. If you want the blessing of my protection, you must trust my provision. Number verse twenty-three. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when He seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in under your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. God's making it clear. I'm not just doing this tonight. We're establishing, uh, we're establishing something forever for the nation of Israel. This is going to be something you're going to remember. Verse 25. And it shall come to pass, When you come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service, and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel and in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Now listen what the people did. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they? I'm going to ask a very complex question. Why did they go and put blood? They did exactly what they said. They went. They got a lamb. They made sure he was without blemish. They shut him up 14 days. On the 14th day, what said they did as Moses commanded? They did exactly what he said. On the 14th day, they slew the lamb. They put blood in the basin. They got hyssop. They put it on the doorpost and on the uh, the the, the lintel above the door. They did all that they were told. They went inside the house. and did as God said. Why? It was because God said, well, the Egyptians knew it too and they didn't do it. Why did they do it? They believed God. Isn't that rocket science? They did what God said because they believed what he said. They believed judgment was coming. They believed that if they did what he said, he would keep his word and pass over. It's the same reason Noah built an ark. Noah had never seen a raindrop. Noah had never seen a flood. Noah had never seen God judge humanity. Never seen it. But God told him. And he believed God. Same thing here. Because they believed God, they did what God said. They reverenced. And so let me give you just a few points under this. The procurement of the people, what we find is in verses 29 and 30, that God did pass through with judgment, but the death angel did not touch the Israelites. Because when God saw the blood, he passed over. And so they procured the protection that God promised. They procured the deliverance that God had said. Here's why. There was simplicity of the precept. God made it very clear what was required of them uh, and what they needed to do. The significance of the promise is seen in verses 24 through 27. He says, this is not just something we're going to do tonight. This is something you're going to remember perpetually. What takes place tonight? You know what God did? He reset and started a new calendar at the Passover. To this very day, the Jewish calendar does not start in January. It starts about our April, Ma- March, April. Do you know why? Passover. God said, this is a new beginning for you. When the, when the death angel passes over you and you get pardoned from God. May me ask you a question? The people behind those houses, did they get blood and they get passed over? Because they were better than the Egyptians. These are the same people that for the next 40 years would murmur and complain and grumble about everything God did, but they still got salvation. Did they deserve being passed over? No, but God provided and they believed him. That's salvation. And so what I'm trying to say here this morning is God made some simple, he said this is very simple, there's a lamb, the lamb is slain in your place. You apply the blood of the lamb to your doorpost and based on the presence of that blood i'll spare you from my judgment but he said this is not light this is significant he would later tell them remember the day when i passed over you and it's so significant that you're going to establish an annual feast to remember what i did it is so significant that when this time comes around every year it'll be the start of a new year for you and we don't need to miss what god was saying is i'm establishing something here that has eternal significance that's why it brings up a new calendar, and it's to be observed forever. And so it's a simple precept, but it's a significant promise. And then we see in these verses the sincerity of the people. The Bible says they bowed their head and worshipped. That worship means people, I tell you, we're in a culture that's redefined so many terms. So many terms. Worship today. Uh, so I say, so I used this a few weeks ago just to illustrate what I'm talking about. If I say the term stewardship, immediately people think money. Well, stewardship has so much more to do than just money, right? If I say worship, what do people think? So someone is the worship leader at church. What do they do? Music. Now, music is part of worship. It is. But what is truly, what is worship? Is worship something we do or is worship something we have in our hearts? Worship is an attitude of heart that is expressed through what we do. The people bowed their head. Their body, yes, it, it was it was expressive of the attitude of their heart. They bowed their head, showing your God, your Lord, and they worshiped. In fact, throughout Scripture, many times when men are worshiping, their head is bowed, their knee is bowed, they are on their faces. Now, I want you to think about this. Don't, miss, don't lose me this one. I'm, I'm taking just a little bit of a rabbit trail. But I believe as we have received. I say we, I mean very largely and collectively false gospels. We have developed false worship. What has happened is in Scripture, when men worshiped Daniel, for instance, gets a glimpse of the Savior and he's on his face. John the Revelator gets a glimpse of the Savior and he's on his face. Today, worship looks like a dance party because it's false religion. It's not a different style. It's false. It's glorifying the flesh, not God. And these folks, when they understood the greatness of the promise of God and the significance of what God was doing for them, bowed their heads and worshipped. You know what I find? Uh, some, some heroes of the faith, they, it, was in, it was significant to them to bow the knee when they would be in prayer. I'm told George Mueller would not pray without bowing the knee, that A.W. Tozer would not pray without lying on his face. It's the attitude of heart toward God. But may I say this, you cannot have that attitude of worship if you don't understand the blood of the Lamb. Don't miss the significance of all of this. And as we're about to leave Exodus in just a moment, I want to just be clear at the picture that's painted. God gives a precept. He says, judgment is coming. Here's what you do to prepare. You select the Lamb, you slay the Lamb. The Lamb is a substitute. I'm going to give you a promise. There's destruction coming. I promise that. But there's deliverance if you will, by faith, do what I told you to do. Apply the blood, stay in your house, and trust me to pass over you. The procurement, the people believed him, they worshipped him, and they did what he said. They took him by faith, and it's very clear, not one Israelite firstborn died. Not one. Why? Because God kept his word. Now, turn, if you would, to John's Gospel, chapter 1. With all of that understanding, and many of you sitting here already have the understanding of that, thousands of years go by. Many Passovers have been observed. Many have been skipped in rebellion. In the nation of Israel, uh, you have some great Passovers like Ezra's and, or excuse me, uh, Hezekiah's and Josiah's, where there was revival in the land, and they would hold a great Passover, and the whole nation would get involved. And then you had times when men like Manasseh were in rule, and there was no Passover kept. And yet we come into the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been silent. God has not been revealing Himself to His people. They've been in rebellion. They've been in captivity. The Old Testament has ended, and then the silence is broken when the angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah in the temple as he's offering incense and prayer. And God says, I'm going to give you John, your son. Your wife will have a child. His name will be John. And you know the story. John the Baptist was born, and John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. And when the Lord showed up on the scene, he didn't say, Behold, the Lion of Judah. Is that what he said? If you were a Jew an Israelite you would have understood exactly what he said when he said this in John chapter 1 verse 29. Let's back up actually and put this just in a, in a little bit of context. Verse 19 and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and levites from Jerusalem to ask him who art thou and he confessed and denied not but confessed I am not the Christ. And they went on asking who art thou then and he goes on to say in verse 26 John answered them in verse 26 saying I am baptized I baptized with water but There standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabra, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, For he was before me. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. I wanted to spend the time we did in Exodus chapter 12 to establish the significance of John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God. When Jesus showed up on the scene, what John is saying, and by the way, not only was Jesus the fulfillment, I think we did a whole series of messages on lambs in the Old Testament, how Christ is the fulfillment of that But the Lord Jesus came and was the fulfillment of a host of sacrifices. Abel's lamb that he offered to God in faith as a substitute is pictorial of this moment right here. Noah, after he comes out of the ark, offers up a sacrifice. And Abraham would offer sacrifices. And on top of Mount Moriah, when Isaac was going to be slain, and there was a substitute made, and that ram was caught in the thicket, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, he is saying, This is the fulfillment of all of that. It's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. If you know your scripture, you know what the Bible says, Jesus was literally crucified on the 14th day of the first Jewish calendar month. He was literally the fulfillment of the Passover. And when John says, "Night and not say, Behold, a lamb. He said, Behold, the lamb. Remember we said back in Exodus 12 how God said, Now every one of you, have a lamb for every household, and you will kill it, singular, in the evening." You'll kill it because that was symbolic of a sacrifice being made for the nation. And even so, as Christ comes on the scene, he is the ultimate lamb. When John says, Behold the Lamb of God, that's what he's saying. He is the ultimate lamb. What you find here is on this occasion, man did not select the lamb. God did. What did Abraham say on Mount Moriah? Uh, When Isaac's his father, behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say prophetically? God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. And when John the Baptist, the God appointed, filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, God appointed prophet, sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's the one God has selected. Friends, this is is the heart of everything a child of God believes. That Jesus Christ is not a better way. He is God's only way. It's why he's called the Christ. He's the anointed of God. And so then the selection of this lamb is made by God and not by man. When Jesus was baptized of John, God the Father from heaven said, uh, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And throughout his ministry, the mark of God the Father was on God the Son to say, This is the Lamb I have chosen. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm going to tell you something. I think we need many of us as God's people need a bit of a reset button these days. There's enough filth going on in our world. There's enough horrors in our world today. Enough to upset you that we just need to be reminded. Jim was speaking of it on Thursday night with some students in the class. That What is the problem in the world today? What is the problem? Is it communism? Is that not what you ask? Is it socialism? Is that the problem we're facing today? I say as an American citizen, boy, China's a problem. Would you agree? Eh, If you're paying attention. But they're not the problem You know what the problem in America is? You know what the problem in the United States, Canada, Mexico, China, North Korea, South Korea, Vietnam, you name where it's at. The problem is sin. It's been the problem since the Garden of Eden and it will be the problem until the Lord Jesus Christ establishes His kingdom on this earth. But here's what we must know. God has provided a solution for the problem. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And, and I'm grateful for that statement. So the selection of the Lamb is seen in John 1. But I want us to consider, just like the Lamb in Exodus 12, the Lamb was not seen just to be admired. They didn't get the Lamb and put it up on a block and have everybody come around and say, What a nice Lamb. Now you try to be like the Lamb. Is that the way it works? Look at this Lamb. Look how innocent He is. Try to pattern your life after the Lamb. That's secularism, that's humanism. And you might package it and use Jesus as your example, but Jesus did not come merely to set an innocent example so we all would learn how to be better people. That means the problem is intellectual. If all we need is education, and Jesus came merely to give us an education, then we just need to study Him and we can be like Him. But that's not the problem, we're dead people. And you hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. The problem with the Israelites is they were as worthy of judgment as the Egyptians were. The difference is they were willing to believe God and submit and the Egyptians were not. That's the distinction. And this morning, the fact of the matter is, is our problem is not an intellectual one or education could solve it. We live in the most educated culture in the world. Do we not? We live in the most educated time in the world. Man has more knowledge and facts about how things work than we've ever had before. And we're as evil and as corrupt as we've ever been. Instead of using our knowledge to save lives, we're using our knowledge to kill them by the millions when they didn't even get to breathe their first breath. Don't tell me education is the answer. It's not. It's not a financial problem, it's not a cultural problem where, well, you were born into a bad society in poverty. No, rich people have sin, poor people have sin, black people have sin, white people have sin. And God said, I have provided the solution. And He selected His only begotten Son, God in the flesh, to be the solution for our sins. And so, the selection of the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God. I'll remind us again of Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation... And any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But I want you to notice something about the lamb in Exodus 12. Two things had to happen. They didn't, he didn't say, now kill the lamb and eat it. And he didn't just say, cut some blood, get some blood and put it on the doorpost. Let me ask you something. Can you bleed an animal without killing it? Well, you can. You can. You could, you could get enough blood out of it to put some on your doorpost, and then the animal would not have to die, and you have the best of both worlds. You get to keep your prized lamb and be saved. You with me? So that's not enough. The lamb must be slain, for the wages of sin is death. You and I think the wages of sin is inconvenience. You see, we we believe that the, what we believe the solution to our sin is reveals how bad we think sin is. When you believe that you can redeem yourself by doing good deeds, that shows a deep misunderstanding of the horror of sin. God says, no, 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 it's worse than that. Sin is so ugly in the sight of God, it can only be recompensed with death. And then he says, and not only death, but blood has to be shed. That blood is a picture and a token of the price of our sin. How many of you like seeing shed blood? I don't like it. I I can deal with it, but I don't like it. Yeah, there's a reason for that. It is, it's horrific, is it not? Uh, I remember observing an accident one time and it was horrific. I cannot remove that image from my mind. And One of the things that marks that accident is blood. May I say this? The blood on the door is a reminder. The blood of Jesus Christ today, it's a reminder of two things. The horror of man and the holiness of God. Two things. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Before sin, there was no disease in the world. But since sin, if they want to find out if you've got a disease, what do they do? Well, they'll draw your blood. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The fact of the matter is, there's no contamination in the blood of our precious Savior. He's without blemish. I mean, I say this, he didn't just come to live and John say, there he is, that's him. He had to be slain. Look at First Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our sins cost Jesus his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He is referred to specifically in this text as our Passover. That's why we know Exodus 12 is about Jesus. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about a lamb. It's not about a nation. It's not about a a legal system. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. He's called there our Passover, meaning all that's said in Exodus 12 is a picture and a type of him. And the fact that that lamb had to be slain and his blood had to be shed is the same. The Lord Jesus would tell us in John chapter 6, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And many left him after that. They thought he was advocating cannibalism. What he meant is, my broken body and my shed blood are going to be the redeeming price for your sins. He would tell us in John chapter 10 that no man would take his life from him. He would lay it down for us. And the fact is, the lamb was selected, but it was selected just like in Exodus 12, that it might be slain as a substitute. So we see the selection of the lamb in John 1. We see the sacrifice there in 1 Corinthians 5. And then a number of verses tell us of the sufficiency of this lamb. Meaning, just like God said, if you slay that lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, you need not fear the death angel. Even so, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, there's no need to fear death. Amen? That's God's Word. Now, if you would, let's look at a number of verses. Look at Romans chapter 3. The the Lamb, the name the Lamb is not used here, but the truth that we need to convey is. Romans chapter 3. We're very familiar with verse 23, as we should be. Uh, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Being justified. The next word in your Bible is freely. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that is a, a payment in full, a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Verse 26, to declare, I say it this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. First Peter chapter one. I'll read a number of scriptures to you as we work our way toward conclusion here. First Peter chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty. First Peter one eighteen through twenty. Bible says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, verse 21, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. God says, here's how I'll save you from my judgment. Here's how I'll save you from my wrath. I'll provide a lamb. and That lamb is my only begotten son. And Jesus was slain and His blood was shed and applied in heaven on behalf of the sins of every man. Now, we'll get to our conclusion in just a moment, but the fact is the Lamb is sufficient. What Jesus did when He died on the cross and shed His blood is sufficient payment for the sins of the world. On the cross in John 19, He said, It is finished. And Hebrews tells us repeatedly that He died once for all, meaning it was a done work this is the importance of this can you imagine what you think about this someone is in egypt and you're there and you say hey i heard that something is going to happen tonight and they say oh yeah you heard what moses preached didn't you he says the judgment's coming the final plague and the firstborn is going to be killed and guy says i'm not worried i'm not a firstborn So what about your family and what if you're not in that house what's going to happen to you ah, i don't know so what about you he said well I heard what Moses said. It's really strange. He said, get a lamb, kill it, put its blood on the doorpost and eat it that night and stay in the house. That doesn't seem like that will work to me. So I have decided to put some gold out there on the porch for the death angel. And I've decided to put some other things out there for him just in case. And I'm going to stand out there and watch and see what happens. You tell me, is that going to work? Today is would you believe in the Lamb? I do, but I'll, I, and just in case it's not enough, I'm going to do some other things too. There are some today say so, oh, we're glad for the atonement of Christ. We're glad for what he did. but but it's not enough. Oh, it is. You know what it took to be saved from the death angel? A lamb had to die, its blood had to be applied and you had to put your trust in that promise. That's simple. That's simple. Same with us today. Christ died for our sins. Isaiah 53 reminds us that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We're not lambs. We're like sheep, stubborn and ignorant. We've gone astray. And the Lord hath laid on Him, the Lamb, the iniquity of us all. Look very quickly at Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation 1, verse 5. Bible says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What is it that takes your sin away? What you do for God or what Jesus Christ did for you? Your your goodness and mine cannot cleanse our sin debt. It can't cleanse our record. I, on occasion, like to ask fellows that are spending some time behind bars, if you could get your entire record washed of everything, felonies, misdemeanors, everything, what would that mean to you? They'd say it'd be a new life. I kid you not. It'd be a new life. You got that right. Well, there's a record that's more more accurate than the courthouse, and it's heaven's record, and if you could get every misdemeanor and every felony against God erased, what would it mean to you? Reset your calendar, it's a new life. The blood of Jesus takes every sin you've committed and removes it so that God doesn't see it. He says, when you trust what my son did, his blood is perfect, he shed his blood, and when you put your trust in that, I take your sins away. Some say, it cannot be that simple. It is, and many are in hell today because they don't believe it's that simple. That's it. He did it for me. I trust in Him. His blood is sufficient payment for our sins. Revelation seven fourteen. I found it very interesting in studying for this message. As far as I can tell, the number, the book that refers to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God more than any other is what book? Book of Revelation. It's the preferred title for our Savior. In the book of Revelation, He's the Lamb. He's the Lamb. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Revelation 7.14 says this, though. Talking about those that have come out of tribulation. says in verse 14, And I said to him, Sure, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. Is God's word, could it be any clearer, that the way our sins get washed away is through the blood of Jesus Christ? That's what removes our sin. Not us, Him and His shed blood. Finally, we've seen the selection of the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. The sacrifice of the Lamb. He died for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The, the sufficiency of the Lamb. He died once for all. He said on the cross, it is finished. But the supremacy of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 5. How many of you, if Satan were your prosecutor today, has some crimes on you that he could bring up to God? Anybody? Could Satan accuse you of having sinned against God and have some validity to it? You know what? Satan's not above bringing those up to you either. The Bible says, we'll see this in Revelation 12 in a few moments, that he accuses us to God. He's the accuser of the brethren. Meaning he goes to God and says, that can't be your child. You know what he said. You, You heard his words. He cursed your name. And if he didn't, I bet I can get him to... That's what he said about Job. I'll get him to cuss you, God. He only loves you because you give him stuff. If you take away the stuff, he'll curse you. God said, take it. Well, if you take away his health, he'll curse you. You know what he's doing? He's accusing Job of being a fraud. And you know what? Job held up better than any of us would. But the old devil was accusing a good man before God because Job was justified by faith. Anyway, we're justified, and He does the same with us. You've been born again. You've put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and your sins have been forgiven you for Christ's sake. And Satan goes and accuses us to God, says, He's cursed your name. He's committed this act of sin, and it may be true, but you know how you and I overcome Him? We don't sit there and say, but I don't do it anymore. Well, you shouldn't do it anymore. If you repentance, you turn your back on it. You know how we overcome that old accuser? My sins are under the blood. He died for me. He already paid for that. You can't can't twice judge my crimes. They've been judged in Him. You can't do it twice. And so the fact of the matter is, I want to see the supremacy of this Lamb. Revelation 5.12. You know what's going to be the theme in heaven? It's not going to be politics, I promise you. The theme in heaven is not going to be the greatness of the United States. The theme in heaven is not going to be how well we could serve God on earth. The theme in heaven is going to be Jesus Christ. Revelation 4.11, Revelation 5.12, because that's what thrills our hearts and that's what glorifies God. Revelation 5.12, it says this, in verse 11, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast's and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. And then just to throw a few more in, it says, and thousands of thousands. I think there's a few people around the throne. And angels and all this. Verse 12. What are they saying? Saying with a loud voice, I love this phrase in my Bible. Worthy is the Lamb. Not worthy... Is that group or worthy is this group? There'll be those in Matthew 7 we're told that will come at judgment day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, they know His name and they know His title and they know that He's Lord. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? And have we not cast out devils in Thy name? And in Thy name done many wonderful works. You know what their theme is? We are worthy. No one's going to get into heaven saying we are worthy. We we'll get into heaven saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb, verse 12, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You watch how man behaves. Watch political movements. We say, Boy, so-and-so is worthy to be elected. Probably not. That's what it means worthy to receive power. Do you know who deserves to rule every person? You know who's worthy to rule our lives? Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for us. Worthy is the land to receive power. He's worthy to receive riches. Do you know how many millions of dollars are elected in getting people into power? Not worthy, but they get it. <laughs> to receive power and riches and wisdom. And you know what? Where, where should we invest our wisdom that has been given to us? In the lamb. Isn't it amazing how many times the Lord Jesus Christ gets second best? Isn't it? Our workplace gets a hundred percent and God gets ten and we pat ourselves on the back. You with me? He's worthy to receive our best. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, Mind and strength. People will pour over books for hours, studying for exams and studying to resolve work situations and pour over their Bible for five minutes. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power. We'll let things run our lives. It ought not. Riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory and blessing. Shouldn't Christ get our best? Why should He? Well, I'll give Christ my best because then that'll work out well for me. No, that's just selfishness. He should because He's worthy. He deserves it. That's the song in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Boy, Exodus 12 has a lot of meaning, doesn't it? We will observe the Passover forever. Every time we see His nail-pierced hands, we'll be observing that Passover, what took place in Egypt all those years ago, the supremacy of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 12:11. Revelation twelve eleven, in Verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by their own tenacity. No, no. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony And they love not their lives unto the death. Why does it bring up the word of their testimony? You know what the word of their testimony is? It's the blood applied to the doorpost. That's it. Say how, okay, in in Egypt, they got the blood on their doorpost by taking hyssop and literally physically putting it on. Jesus' blood was shed. That's been done. it's, It's applied in heaven. But how do I get that applied to me? You know what the word of their testimony is? Whosoever believes in him should not be ashamed that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Our testimony is, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and his shed blood. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. You know what that's saying? He was so precious to them because of what he did for them, that they said, we're willing to live and die for him. Tonight, God willing, we're going to take a break from our series on the body for one message. Uh, We're looking at a character in the Old Testament. And there's reason for this. We've directed this way. And he tells David, I'll be with you in life or in death. Where you go, I'll be. You know what? That's the theme here. Nothing, listen, nothing will motivate you to live a life pleasing to God like understanding that he did it all for us. Meaning... Everything that's needful to erase our sin debt, Jesus Christ did it. He's the Lamb slain. And listen this morning, there is a death angel coming in the nighttime of this world. What happened in Egypt is a microcosm of what's going to take place at large. There's a nightfall coming on earth, and the death angel's coming. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. You say, "How can I be delivered from the wrath that's coming?" you got to have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to the doorpost of your heart, and that is by putting your faith in Him. The word of our testimony is, my trust is in Him. Who are you trusting to take care of your sins? Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something. Even as a saved person, if I start focusing on my performance, I get discouraged and doubtful. It's never enough, friend. But when I focus on what Jesus Christ did for me, it fuels me to serve him. I started saying a moment ago, nothing will motivate you to serve him more than knowing that his shed blood has fully taken care of your sin debt. And knowing that it's settled once and for all, says, the man, if he did that for me, he died for me, he shed his blood for me, I'm going to live for him. That's how you stay in fellowship and communion with the Lord. I don't know where you are this morning. God knows every heart here. I know that many of you already have a testimony, an outward testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. I would say this. Testimonies are intended to be heard. Amen? Others need to hear, my faith is in Him. It's not in my religious system. It's not in my performance. It's not in my character. It's in what He has done for me. I am relying... We'll conclude here. If you're inside a house and the blood was on the doorpost and the death angel is coming through, do you have anything to fear? Can you imagine, though? I can only imagine... Uh, 10 or 11-year-old firstborn sitting in there. He says, "No, Daddy, are we okay? Are we all right? Dad, you're a firstborn. I'm a firstborn. His dad says, son, we put the blood on the door. Is it, are, we, are we okay? He says, son, God said, if we would put the blood on the doorpost, we have nothing to fear. Some people are saved this morning but they can't rest in the promises of God. God said... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning and say, I am trusting what Christ did for me, then you just rest and serve God. You're safe. Amen? This morning you may be here and say, You know what? I've never come to this. Maybe there's something in this message that makes things clear to you. Say, You know what? I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I deserve God's judgment. But I don't know that I'm saved from it. Maybe this morning you've never done something this simple. I believe that what Jesus did when he died for me paid for my sins. That he has already been punished and if I'll put my trust in him, just like God says, I'll be forgiven and saved from God's wrath. Romans 5, as we close, Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Even as the blood took care of the death angel, the life of that animal laid down gave them strength to leave Egypt that night. You may be saved this morning. You may be saved from God's wrath. You know where you get your strength to live for Him? By what's being preached here today. Don't forget whose body was broken for you whose blood was shed for you, you draw your strength from what He's done for you.